This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T, and you are listening to episode 67. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. Last year, I hosted the first ever live Planet Microcap podcast. To say there were fireworks among the panelists would be an understatement, but what made it special for me was the opportunity to have that dialogue and interaction with our audience in person. For our 2018 event, it was a no-brainer. We had to do it again. For 2018, I had Philippe Belanger from eSpace Microcaps, Chris Lahiji from LD Micro, Sam Namiri from Ridgewood Investments, and Travis Weador from Weador Capital on the panel with me this year. I chose this group because not only are they entertaining, but they each provide a unique take on the microcap space. We covered a whole host of topics, including how they evaluate a new potential investment, what value investing means to them, what they see going on in the microcap space, and their thoughts for the rest of 2018. I would like to thank Philippe, Chris, Sam, and Travis for joining me on this panel. To everyone who came to the Planet Microcap Showcase 2018 and look forward to seeing you all in 2019. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 67 of the Planet Microcap Podcast. And please enjoy the second Planet Microcap Podcast live. Thank you all for sticking around with us and uh, and being here for this uh, this day of our microcap investing workshop. I really hope that you learned a lot and uh, uh, gleaned a lot of uh, good insight and information from some of the the best and brightest in our industry. So now, without further ado, this is the, uh, the panel that I, I I always look forward to doing every single year. And uh, being that it's our second year, that uh, for all two years, I've been looking forward to it every day. <laughs> so uh, before I get started with the introduction, I uh, wanted to, uh, 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 I tried to memorize the disclaimer that I do at the beginning of every podcast, but I'm going to keep it very simple. Here's our disclaimer and forward-looking statement notice. <laughs> there may be forward-looking statements that, uh, uh, it's right here. If you'd like to read it at any point, uh, please, I invite you all to come up and read it word for word. Um, so uh, for those of you who don't know, I started a podcast called Planet Microcap Podcast in July of 2015. And the reason that I started this was twofold. One is that I wanted to become a better microcap investor. And I knew that I had access to some of the best in the business that had been doing it for a long time and that I really thought could help me on my journey. And the second part was that, you know, I always got questions from my fraternity brothers telling me, microcaps, you're investing in finance? Uh, okay, cool, yeah, great, Bob, all right, that's fine. 
And I thought, well, that's not, you guys don't understand. There's so much opportunity and so many different avenues you can go down and, and learn and, and really build your wealth from, uh, from a very early age. And um, so I wanted to uh, provide a platform to help people uh, go on this journey with me. And so uh, with that, Planet Microcap podcast was born. Uh, since then, uh, we have, uh, I think we're almost at about 100,000 downloads. Um, I believe the, if anybody wants to check the exact That's number, good. I'd greatly appreciate it. Um, and uh, some of the, the gentlemen that you see on here, actually all the gentlemen that you've seen on here have been guests on the podcast and uh, some multiple times. And uh, I'm really, really appreciative to everyone who's joining me here today. First up is Sam Namiri from Ridgewood Investments. <laughs> Next up is uh, Travis Weador from Weador Capital. <laughs> Philippe Belanger from <laughs> eSpace Microcaps. <laughs> and this man who needs no introduction, who most of you do know. Boo! He's wearing boo, a beautiful we hate Chris, tiger encrusted shirt. He's a douchebag. <laughs> Mr. Chris Lahiji from LD Micro. Please don't clap. Please. <laughs> it only makes it worse. Thank you. So, uh, <laughs> so as I always like to do at the beginning of each podcast, I'd like to start off with uh, asking everybody their background and, and how they got their start investing in microcap stocks. So, Sam, you're first up. What is your background? Great. So, I've actually known Chris for is it 21 years now, and so I got started investing in microcap stocks when we were in high school. We would actually, like during lunchtime, go on Yahoo Finance back in the day, and you know this was during the tech bubble, and you know look at companies and see what what the stocks were at that day because stocks were always going up. And we were making a lot of money, so that's that's how we first got in. That's how I got first got into microcap. I think Chris started a little bit before me, not really quite sure, but. Um, since then, I started a small company myself, a jewelry company. Um, you know, started importing stuff and had a eBay, started on eBay actually. Um, grew that business, started a TV show at one point, had a factory overseas, contract manufactured out in China, um, and then grew that. And then in late, like right before the, right around after the, during the recession, the, the commodity prices flew up a lot, and so um, you know I realized that was a bad business and went to business school, um, and then kind of my Love for investing rekindled there. And then I worked at a Grand Slam, which is a small cap hedge fund for about six years. And then now I just launched a small cap hedge fund at Ridgewood. Um, so that's, that's my background. Travis? Oh. Um, so I, I was playing poker full time for uh, about two or three years when I was younger. Had some money on the side that was basically earning 0% in a bank account. So I decided I needed to do something with that. Um, started investing on the side just as a hobby. Over the years, that hobby grew into an obsession and a passion. And um, about three and a half years ago, I decided that's really what I want to do with my life. Um, so I started invest my own investment firm. Still very small, um, mostly family and friends and myself, obviously. Um, and yeah, when I started investing, I was uh, discovered Ben Graham and Warren Buffett, obviously, and did the whole net-net thing. So I kind of started out in microcaps, and now I look at, across the board, but microcaps is where I started, and um, still kind of my preferred space. Philippe? Yes, so um, um, my, my background first is in corporate finance. Uh, I worked two years for an insurance company called Travelers, and I was introduced to microcaps by a colleague there at work. Um, 
I think my timing was very lucky. Uh, you, I heard about microcaps in the middle of 2013 and 2014 and 2015. As, uh, 2013 and 2014 has been have been really good years for microcaps. So um, my colleague just like explained his strategy, and I was like, okay, like can you give me two names that you like? I looked them up. I was like, well, yeah, it seems interesting. I invested, and then the two names um, became eight baggers, and I was hooked. So I know if I would still be here today if I like started just at the right time. <laughs> uh, after that, I made sure to understand why I've been success successful on those two investments. Um, and like Travis, I, I, I played like three, two to three years uh, part-time um, as a professional poker player. So it was a good timing too because I had money to invest. I didn't know what to do with it. And um, yeah, so now I don't play poker anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and Chris? I uh, wanted to thank everyone for being with us here today. Um, I want to say that I was also a professional poker player because we're in <laughs> Vegas, and I'm definitely wearing the shirt that is suited for that game. Um, but, you know, in many ways, poker is very similar to microcap in the sense that, like most things, timing is everything. So I was very, very fortunate in my life to, to start when I was 13, and this was basically in the summer of 96 before, before tech really ripped. Um, the story is that uh, I've known Sam for a long time now. We both went to high school together, and... This was in the days of 56K modems. So it would take you like two or three minutes for a page to load. And the only place that had internet at our school was the library. So I'd have to lie and say, oh, I'm going for a bathroom break. And I would run down the staircase and go all the way to the library just to get some stock quotes. Um, so it was, it was just one of these things where I always say that it still fascinates me to this day that an individual can own a part of a company. That to me has always been really cool. And as, as time has gone on, you know, I think my focus has been more on, on, on this segment of the market because I think that there are, there are a lot of you know, discrepancies out there. And if you're patient enough, you will make money. But um, you know, my take is I started professionally in November of 2002 right as the market was kind of, kind of coming up again. And um, just really excited to be on this panel and and looking forward to answering everyone's questions. So Chris, I'm actually gonna come right back to you. Thank you. All right, so. I feel like debate club. <laughs> <laughs> so Chris, how do you then evaluate a new potential investment when you're looking at a, you know, a microcap stock? I think share count is huge. Um, what we've, we've learned a few, like if this was my last time talking, and I was like, let me give you guys some valuable lessons. There are a few things that we have seen repeatedly over the years that have usually been good harbingers for successful investments. One is that um, we have made more money on companies the closer they are geographically to us. So someone kind of tried to figure out why that was the case. I just think it's you're less likely to lie to your neighbor than you are to someone that lives 3,500 miles away. <laughs> Uh, the other thing that we look at are share counts. You know, we try not to invest in anything that has massive dilution or something where, you know, there's like a convert, you know, series D, 10% preferred. We like clean, we like very clean balance sheets. Um, so we're traditionalist. I mean, in the sense that, you know, we, we, we love to have one degree point of connection with the executives. 
We'd love to see large and tighter holdings, and we'd like to see discipline when it comes to the common. And again, historically, you know, uh, it takes time, but all in all, uh, we've been successful kind of following these things. Uh, but not to say that every now and then we won't invest in a story stock or something that has a lot of hyper hysteria. Um, that's fun too. But uh, traditionally, our investments have been in you know areas where you know we value a dollar at about fifty to sixty cents that we think can make five to ten cents a year for investors. And then, Philippe, you know, wh how, how do you then also evaluate uh, a new potential investment? Uh, basically, I have a checklist of fifteen-ish quality criteria, and uh, uh, Chris, Chris, name a few. Uh, but uh, you know, the first thirty minutes, I look at a potential investment. This is kind of the make-or-break moment. Uh, I will look at revenue growth right away, capital structure. Um, you know, the last twelve months, financial performance, and I need to see something that I like, or I'll just like throw it in the trash pile. Uh, so maybe I can go over some of the criteria that I do like. So I, uh, revenue growth, of course, if you're a small company, I think that the goal is to outgrow the microcap asset class or to get big enough to be acquired. Um, <clears throat> then trends and gross margins. Uh, I like to invest in companies that have uh, uh, op uh, operating leverage. Um, so cash flow generation. I think in, micro in the microcap space, if you want to get through a full cycle, need to invest in company that has strong strong balance sheets so uh, cash in the bank no little to no debt um, a history of good capital allocation obviously um, so yeah this is some of the stuff that, that we we looked at and uh, I think one of the m our most important criteria is insider ownership uh, I I mean I've, I've been an investor for five years but um, most of the companies I invested in where the management has like little skin in the game, I didn't do well. Uh, so that's pretty much it. And Travis, how, how do you analyze a potential new investment? Uh, yeah, probably the key aspect of my investing is surfaced around a very long-term investment horizon. Um, so when I'm looking at companies, I'm thinking of like the five, 10-year-plus horizon. I don't really care what they're going to do next quarter, next year. Um, I'm very concentrated, very low turnover. So when I buy a company, I kind of go in with the mindset that I'm going to own it forever. Obviously, that doesn't always come to fruition, but um, that's certainly the mindset that I go in with. So uh, my research is heavily focused on you know, their competitive advantage, the industry dynamics, how I think that industry will evolve over the next decade, how their competitive advantage will change within that evolution. Um, and you know any company that I'm going to own for potentially 10 years or forever, um, obviously the CEO is very important. Most companies I own, they're still led by their founders. Um, not that that's a requirement, but I've just found they generally have the attributes that I'm looking for. So I put heavy emphasis on um, talking to the CEOs, finding CEOs I can trust, um, obviously high insider ownership, um, you know, reasonable salaries. And then, yeah, just kind of getting to know them a little bit and coming to trust them. And um, I would say, yeah, those are the two main things I'm focused on. Cool. And Sam, round us out. How do yeah. you analyze a new investment? Yeah, I'd say I'd I kind of look at things like a mixture of what everyone here so far said, except Travis. I think my 10-year horizon is a little, it's a little shorter than a 10-year horizon. I'm, I'm more of a two to three year out. Um, um, 10-week horizon. <laughs> <laughs> um, and 
I guess the aspect I look at that's a little kind of like what Travis was talking about is the quality of the business for me is really important. Um, I, I like recurring revenue businesses or, or intrinsically recurring revenue because I don't want um, the company to have to constantly look, be looking for new customers all the time. Um, and then I also, for me, price, pay, what the price I pay is very important because I can find a great business, but if it's you know, too expensive where I don't think, you know, I think a lot of the future growth is already priced in, you know, I don't really want to wait you know, three to five years for you know, that future growth to actually come to fruition. And a lot of times, it doesn't. And so then you get whacked. So um, yeah, that's kind of my So uh, another thing that I've noticed in, in, in everything that uh, ever you all said on this, this panel when it comes to your investing thesis is that you know, most of you are value investors or you have, uh, you know, you have value investing qualities to your thesis. You know, so for each of you, what, what does value investing really mean to you? And Travis, in your opening, you said, you know, you got into this because you've read Buffett, Graham, you know, so, you know, you seem to be more of the true blue traditionalist in this. So tell me, what, what does it really mean to you? That's funny you say that. Sometimes I feel like I'm not a value investor at all because <laughs> I have no problem paying like 100 times earnings for a company if I think it's going to kill it over the next decade. <laughs> but um, <laughs> um, I don't, I, I, the whole value investing I, I don't know what a value investor is. I feel like everyone who's not a day trader or a quant claims they're a value investor. Correct. <laughs> it's true. I meet people all the time who do things that are very different than what I do, and we both say we're value investors. Um, you know, like I was saying, I'm heavily focused on the quality of the company and the, you know, the CEO or the founder, um, really focusing on the very long term. I, I guess similar to Buffett, you know, kind of buying companies and owning them permanently. Um, so more my definition of value, I guess, is more on the qualitative aspects as opposed to the quantitative. I don't really care for companies selling for 0.5 book value or eight times earnings or something like that, mm -hmm. which I think is the more traditional definition. But. So, so Philippe, then how would, how would you also approach it, you know, this, this type of question? You know, I mean, do most of your criteria does tend to fall into that, those more traditional uh, uh, values. Um, it's funny because, like Travis, I don't feel like I'm a value investor, but uh, I think there's a difference between value and price. There, there are different prices for a different value. Um, so for me, value investing is paying significantly less than my perceived value of the intrinsic value of a security. Um, but the problem is it's more art than science. Um, some, some investors use P-E ratios, uh, but like not every ratio is uh, equal. I mean, you have to look at quality and durability of earnings. Um, some investors use DCFs, but then, I mean, um, there are so many subjective inputs in a DCF model that uh, at the end, bottom line, uh, the bottom line for me is uh, uh, my rule of thumb is if I'm buying something that is really undervalued, uh, then any model should capture it. So why not keep it simple? So I tend to look at the next 12 to 24 months, and, I, and I, if I feel that I'm paying uh, a, a cheap price or a fair price, then I'm getting year three, year four, year five, four, basically as, it's a, as an option of, on subsequent years. So I try to keep it really simple. If it looks, it has to look cheap on the surface, and, and, and then obviously uh, I want to buy quality companies too, so it's just like a rule of thumb, then I can filter the universe like that and uh, do more research on the names that uh, are still uh, on my watch list. 
And Chris, you know, because you, you mentioned that you sometimes look at story stocks and stuff, and I know some traditional value investors would say, and no, you know, and, and or, you know, so what, what would you say? Well, I mean, when people ask me what I do for a living, um, I don't say investor, because now in the Bay Area, everyone is a freaking investor. I tell them event planner. And let me tell you, it, it really resonates well with women, okay? Because they're like, do you do weddings? They're like, no. Bar mitzvahs? No. You know, it's like quinceañeras? Like, no. I only do financial services. And then I, I'm a little dishonest and I say doctors because they pay well and on time. But, you know, it, going, going back to this, I mean, microcap is a lot. I, I didn't finish this. Microcap is a lot like playing poker. So you will, these guys know for sure, because all you see on edited television are the hands with action. But about 95% of the time, nothing happens. Microcap is very similar in the sense that you'll buy 100 companies that all hit your criteria, and you will have virtually no idea what they're going to do. The only time anyone makes money is when you know something and you bet big. That's the only time in my career I've ever made money. And sometimes, to Travis's point, it takes 10 years. Sometimes, to Philippe's point, it takes three. And sometimes, to Sam's point, it takes you know, a few weeks. <clears throat> but the, the, the key ingredient is that there are so many variables at play. It's just trying to kind of be at that train station right before the train arrives. Mm. And what, what the, the, the insight that I can share is that we have made the most money when something changes from a relatively ugly business that nobody wants. I'll give you an example, voice over internet protocol. No one wanted to touch these companies five, seven, nine years ago. Even though they had 90% reoccurring revenue and most of them made money, no one gave a shit because it was a commoditized product. But today, they're cloud computing companies and they're the future, and it's in the cloud, which means that you have to pay 80 times 2024 revenue because the cloud is important. It was a perceptional change. Perceptional changes make big money because it goes from a traditional business that nobody wanted, that no one was willing to pay a premium for, to the future. And we all know that the future is expensive. <laughs> Splunk was outrageously overpriced when that piece of crap went public, okay? Oh shit, I'm sure someone from Splunk is probably gonna watch this, okay? It's up like 15X! You know, Priceline was overpriced at 60, it's like two grand. So, you never wanna underestimate what somebody else will pay for it, it's just no one at this table will do that. Because in many instances, it's probably our own money at stake. And when it's your own money, you tend to be a little bit more conservative with it. So I come from the West Asian background, you know, where it's like, can I see it? Can I value it? And how much is it being valued at? And if there's an ARB or a discrepancy, I'm interested. Mm -hmm. If it, there's not, I'm probably passing it just like Splunk that's gone up like tenfold. Mm -hmm. Well, Chris, just to follow up real quick, because there's one thing that I've always been interested in, and it's the discovery phase. So you mentioned that, you know, when it goes from ugly to you know, the the, the next thing you know you said when VoIP then transitions to cloud computing you know like what where did you find that out you know did is it an article you know what what 
you know, where do you get that type of information where it initiated that spark and you're like, all right, you want to look, look, most investors typically go to things that have historically made them money in the past. Mm -hmm. That's why biotech is always a tough sell in the microcap world. If you look, everyone is ultimately doing, you know, a mankind's benefit. But when you see all the companies that are no longer around, it makes you kind of hesitant because it's a capitally intensive business. <coughs> so, A, you're going to go to places that you found comfort in the past and you're going to there is always a premium paid for businesses that are relatively easier to understand. Mm -hmm. So the key takeaway is you have to take something that most people have interpreted as difficult mm -hmm. or difficult to understand and get that clarity to know that that business is gonna be worth a lot more down the road. And I'm pretty damn sure I did not answer your question. <laughs> that was more of a run on. Uh, can you repeat the question, Bobby? I apologize. I'm moving on. Okay, <laughs> thank you. So, so Sam, I also want to ask you the same question too. You know, I know you went to Columbia Business School as well, and you've learned that Columbia, South Carolina. Columbia, South Carolina. That's correct. South Carolina. Um, <laughs> you know, so for for you, you know, you know, how, how do you define value investing? You know, what does oh, it mean? Oh, that to was you? a question. That's <laughs> Got it. Well, uh, <laughs> I mean, honestly, a lot of the guys in the panel hit, have hit it right over the head perfectly. Like, mm -hmm. um, I think Chris said it well at, the, at one point when he was talking, was that, uh, <laughs> you know, you got to look at what, you know, the industry looks at these businesses and give it a real value and then, you know, pay 50, 60 cents on what, you know, that value is and, you know, get that arbitrage. Um, but, but I think the key is there to, like, like, how do you, what do you call value, right? And so... You know, you got to look at what you know competitors are trading at. If there are competitors, mm -hmm. you got to look at you know what companies are buying other companies as well for in the space, right? And so those you you think are logical buyers of those businesses and know what they're getting, um, but sometimes they're irrational as well too. So you know you can be caught in the hype of another VoIP company paying 80 times revenue, right? I mean, I don't, I've never seen that. I don't look at that. Um, but to me, like I don't run after it and I don't chase after those things. Like if, if a company goes up past what I think is the right value or what the real true earnings power is of that business, and, and I use some more qualitative aspects to figure out um, you know, what multiple I should pay for a business. Um, again, like the quality of the business and the earnings and how long I think it'll last and the competitive advantage makes a difference for me. And I want to find businesses, <laughs> I want to find businesses that are trading not just at a cheap valuation, but also, you know, quality businesses as well too that, you know, compared to the rest of the market are trading at a, at a cheaper valuation. And that's because either they're too small and underfollowed, have no sell side coverage, um, you know, too, too, too liquid, or are too difficult to understand, which I think. Well, I by think the way, that was a paid for clap. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, also another thing I want to ask in terms of when you look at, at the market as a value investor and you, you have these qualities, you know, there's so many different industries that you can look at as, as an investor. And there's some industries that, you know, you also can't ignore. You know, you see cannabis, you see crypto, you know, you see all these new industries popping up. So as a, going back to you, Sam, you know, as a value investor, you know, how do you approach some of these new industries that, that have this, this, you know, hype, so to speak, you know, where you want your, you see potentially the value, but at the same time, you're not totally sure how to approach it, you know? That's a good question. Um, yeah, so I, I, for me, it's very hard to invest in stuff that's like crypto or cannabis just because of the risk associated with it. Um, but I wouldn't be, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be against it potentially. But again, if I see parts, like parts of the industry, maybe not like a grower, but 
you know, a service, cannabis service provider or, you know, crypto service provider that has aspects where the business is very sticky, you know, very recurring revenue, um, good margins, um, and doesn't have like a lot of like the industry, potential industry risk, you know, that, that could be interesting. But again, price is very important. I, I don't want to pay, you know, 2020 potential revenue multiples. I want to pay, you know, what I'm, you know, cash today. Um, what I, I think it could get interesting is if, you know, a company over promises, misses out on those promises, and then kind of gets thrown into the penalty box, um, or maybe make some acquisitions and, you know, can't, you know, consolidate those acquisitions well and get the synergies out, and again, then again, gets thrown into the penalty box, where now you can they have a solid path to getting to profitability and, and, you know, trading at a cheap multiple in, you know, earnings or EBITDA multiple in a year or two years from now. Mm -hmm. Chris, did you want to comment on that? Well, I was going to say <clears throat> companies that are in the more speculative areas, cannabis, uh, crypto, biotech, what I've always done personally is if I can't value something, at least quantitatively, I'll buy a little bit of that stock just to own it. So the key takeaway is like Travis, he likes to buy you know, things to hold on forever. You're going to have that in the portfolio. But what we allocate is a, you know, about 20% of our overall assets to more speculative companies. So there are values in crypto and cannabis, but what you do is you juxtapose that with the other cannabis and crypto companies. Um, but all in all, you know, if, if you're ever unsure the way that I look at it, just buy a little bit of it and see what happens. Because the key takeaway is if it goes down, you're like, ah, oh, I knew it was a fraud. And if it goes up, it's like, oh, look, I should have bought more. But at least you still made so, some money. So how does that 20% of your portfolio perform generally? Well, in, in years that the market doesn't crash, great. But I think another thing that we're kind of forgetting is that all bets are off when there's a market crash. Okay. Everyone remembers how shitty 0102 was. Everyone knows how shitty 0809 was. I was polishing off my resume. I was going to go back to, I was going to go back to college. That's how bad it was. So the joke was that when my wife met me, I was relatively wealthy. She was marrying a sugar daddy. And then after the market crash, when we got married, we got married at the bottom of the recession. Yeah, the wedding gifts weren't that great. You know, everyone was broke. <laughs> Basically, she had more money than I did. So technically, you know, I was marrying a sugar mama. <laughs> so I, but you guys, like I said, I think a lot of people really kind of ignore that risk because we've always, because look at Buffett, okay? Now, I'm not going to crap on Buffett because he's everyone's god and he's made a crap ton of money. I mean, the guy's very wealthy, to say the least. But Buffett had all the perfect, he had the perfect scenario. He had an influential and wealthy dad, okay? He came from an affluent family. He invested in the best 50 years of any empire in history. From 1950 to 2000, this country grew more than anything, including the best parts of the Roman Empire. And I'll go back a thousand years. <laughs> of course, his secret was that he had access to capital, he never sold stock, and he lived until, and he, he didn't die of something. <laughs> Which is the greatest story ever told. Munger's like 93 years old. That is impressive in its own right. So, so look, it has to be a perfect scenario for you to make money. Value guys never look at it that way. We always think that the market is going to crash all the time. When the Dow was at like 5,200, it's like, look, it's going to test 4,800. I'm telling you. When NASDAQ was at 1,600, it's like, oh, it's going to be S&P. It's going to be 700. You know, that's the take. We, so, I mean, you, I'm, always, I'm always a half-empty guy as opposed to half-full.
So, and that's why I don't buy more of the things that I invest in because market crashes 20, 30%, all of microcap gets ripped in half. Well, you know, the real question is, maybe not as, you know, what do you, you know, what does value investing mean to you, but what does risk mean to you, mm. you know? Because mm. honestly, at the end of the day, you know, we have four different uh, investing theses, and we also have four different ways to evaluate risk, and your own risk, port you know, your own risk, uh, uh, how you evaluate it, and, and your, how much exposure you want to have to that. You know, I see Travis, you know, I see you cringing, like, ugh. I don't even touch something because I need revenue generating. <laughs> you know, like, can you comment a little bit more on that? You know, just on the yeah. marijuana yes. crypto yeah. stuff. <laughs> yes. or, well, my because I know you're. Yeah. Uh, I, w I would say the longer I invest, the um, more strict I get on my circle of competence, and I think <laughs> my circle of competence, um, you know, realizing the edges of that. So. You know, crypto and marijuana is well outside of that circle of competence. Um, I one of my holdings. You know, some people think blockchain is a risk to one of my holdings. So I have done a decent amount of research in crypto just to, as part to understand it for a company I own. Uh, I spent many hours researching. And I still don't fully understand it. I mean, I personally I can't imagine investing in crypto unless I was you know a pretty advanced programmer and technology person and <laughs> understand it very well. Marijuana, I know very little about. It seems like a commodity business, but. So, so that's where you, you have your level of risk is, you know, you just, you want to know those industries and those companies better. That's really your edge too. You know, you just, you want to know those companies and those industries better than anybody else, even better than this management. I mean, right, Chris, you're looking I don't know like, about that. Well, I was going to say, recreationally, I know a lot about cannabis. I, I don't know in terms of, you know, but again, you guys, it's really early. No one here will dispute that cannabis is not going to be a big business in the next 5, mm -hmm. 10, 20, 50 years. Just like no one was going to dispute that the Internet was going to do something, you know, tectonic 15, 20 years ago. The take is, though, like any new business, there's a gold rush. There's a lot of companies that are coming out, and everyone is trying to showcase a different type of distinctive mechanism. The reality is most of these companies will fail. Some of them will make it, and some of them will be bought out. Mm -hmm. So again, this is kind of like that big bang phase. You know, the comet to come, you know, blown everything. You know, it's still like debris and, you know, you know smoke. It's hard to kind of visualize what's going to happen. But I can tell you with confidence there are companies that are benefiting off the cannabis space that don't trade at ridiculous multiples. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the edge. I mean, one of the most intelligent investors that I know is a guy by the name of, uh, well, he's, he's pretty secret. Let's just call him Andrew, okay? I gotta be careful. But he lives in Vegas. And this guy, his most discernible talent is he can take an industry that is being hyped to kingdom come and find the most traditional businesses that will benefit off this. So he has a real business, he has a real balance sheet, and if someone discovers it, mm -hmm. stock rips. I love that type of like, you know, the best offense is a really good defense. So, like I said, I think these areas can make money, even for value guys. It's just hard to decipher because every single day, you know, cannabis is in the news. There are things going on on the state level and the federal level. There's still so much action that it's difficult to decipher what exactly is going to happen next. Crypto, whew, I mean, it's no one, no one will dispute that there will be some form of cryptocurrency, mm -hmm. but look at how many there are out there. 
and outside of Bitcoin and Ethereum and Litecoin, I mean, it's really hard to kind of gauge how much technology and how much proprietary, you know, uh, tech is behind that. So not saying that it can't be a big business. I'm just saying that it's very difficult to price right now. It's all about managing that FOMO. Well, it's also, those, it's, it's also like contemporary art, you know? <laughs> for me, it's like, it's amazing how much Steve Wynn will pay for a painting, okay, that looks like a white canvas with a little bit of bear scat on it. You know, it's like, oh, deep, provocative. <laughs> but to a lot of people, they were, they're willing to spend 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 million dollars at Sotheby's mm -hmm. because, you know, it is, it is value to them. Mm -hmm. Crypto is kind of in that boat for me in the sense that what somebody sees, I didn't see Bitcoin at a, I mean, I remember when my tech guy, Hal Bergman, good job, bought Bitcoin at a buck per coin. And I, my big thing is, how can something be open source and secure at the same time? Well, of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. That could have been the greatest investment of all time. Wait, hold on, and he's still your tech guy? He bought it at a buck? Uh, yeah, he bought it at a buck. I think he had to sell some a few years back because of his wedding. <laughs> he sold it at two. So <laughs> if, he, <laughs> if, if he didn't get married, he'd be very wealthy. But, but of course, if any of us knew that, we would have invested in it. Sure. But that's mm -hmm. what I'm trying to say. It's still very, very, um, you know, it's still very elusive. Mm -hmm. so, but I typically like, you know, like uh, Mike Melby is another great, great investor. I mean, he, uh, he took out his letter today, and he's like, look, I mean, a lot of things have changed, but land hasn't. And you can make the argument that over the last 100 years, land has been a pretty damn good investment. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's background to it. With crypto and cannabis and these things, it's much difficult to gauge. Mm -hmm. Sorry. So, you know, because I do want to open it up to Q&A, so I, the last two questions I'm going to combine, and uh, we'll get your quick take on it. And, and the two questions to combine are, you know, what do you see going on in the microcap space? And then what do you think the rest of 2018 has in store for microcaps? Philippe, you want to kick us off? Yes, um, I haven't had the chance to comment on crypto and cannabis, but I'm actually happy that uh, nobody asked. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, well, actually, I, I, I don't really like to do uh, predictions. Uh, you know, I don't know what's in store for 2018. Um, as an investor, I want to invest in a company that I think can do well in any market environment. Whatever what I see, I think we're getting closer to the top of the cycle. We're at the end of a huge uh, bull run. And uh, what I see right now, it's, it's getting harder and even harder to find. Like what I, I was uh, finding five years ago, I don't find it anymore. So you have to take on more risk or invest pre-profitability, uh, profitability, sorry. Uh, and um, even, I mean, um, um, some, uh, some investors are now looking into private companies, you know, thinking private companies public and uh, doing money on the, uh, on the, the go-public transaction. So uh, I think you have to adapt. Um, I'm still look, trying to find value, but it, 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 for me, it means more work now. Well, I just want to very quickly, to add to Philippe's point, the best microcap hedge fund that I know, Value Shop, in the last few years has been looking at specifically private names because they can't find anything that hits their parameters. I'm done. Okay. Travis, what do you think? Uh, so, so I don't exclusively invest in microcaps, and the past six or eight months, I really haven't found anything um, super interesting in microcaps. I've found more stuff in small microcap space. Um, Maybe that, that's not claiming anything. Maybe just a coincidence more than anything. Um, no idea where the microcap space is going. I hope it gets cheaper since I haven't been able to find anything in it. 
Sam? Um, so just, I looked back historically back to like I think 1917 or 1923, just to look at, to see how small versus big, you know, growth versus values, you know, performed and relative to each other. And it's really interesting because in the last, you know, three to five years, it's been the first time since post the Great Depression that growth has outperformed value and big has outperformed small. And so I, I think that I don't know when exactly it's going to turn, but I think that there's going to be a reversion to the mean where, you know, small will outperform big and you know, value will outperform growth coming soon. And so I think, um, and that's kind of what happened after, the, after that period post the Great Depression, that, you know, growth outperformed uh, value. Um, so I, I, think, I think we can see a, a, you know, a reversal back to the value investing style that you know, hasn't really worked or outperformed the last few years. Um, that's one thing. I mean, I, again, I'm, I, I don't make many investments, so I still do find things that are interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but it does take me like three, six, sometimes a year or two years before I actually make an investment. Like I'll find good businesses that I like. Um, and then, you know, for some reason, the price becomes attractive again. And so then that's when I'll enter into it. So, you know, being patient is important. And then also I think Chris talked about the market and, you know, timing the market. Um, I think as, as a business owner, I don't think you care too much about timing the market, especially if you have a quality business, time is on your side um, because then you just keep compounding over, over that time, which I think is why Travis is okay paying, right, for a quality business, would, it, would that be fair to say? Um, and so I think Buffett says it, um, you know, like real estate doesn't get priced every minute, every day. Um, you know, businesses shouldn't either. And, and when you're a publicly traded company, you get priced all the time. And I think that, um, you know, that messes around with human behavior. And that's what makes it possible to, you know, find attractive valuations in the microcap space. When a company misses, you know, their earnings estimate three times in a, in a row, um, you know, again, they get put in that penalty box and, you know, can, you know, become attractive as long as the fundamentals of the business, you know, can either turn around or are still strong. Um, so that, that's really the key. So as, as a former business owner, like I, I know that, again, I, I can't value the business off of, you know, even sometimes a, a poor year that I had because there may have been some temporary issues in that market or in that industry, you know, that caused a hiccup and, you know, it shouldn't be trading at the values it's trading at now. And Chris, you know, uh, I'll ask you the same question and, um, you know, because you manage LDMicro.com, you, you have the index, you know, we post the LD micro index, micro cap breakdown every day on Stock News Now. So, you know, I know you've been seeing what's going on. And then also, where do you think it's heading for uh, 2018? I think, I, think, I think that there's going to be over 100 companies in micro cap that are going to go private this year. So more, um, more like last year and the year before that. What's happening is that there's, there's a great privatization going on because a lot of companies don't want to be public anymore. And I think that that trend is going to continue. I also think that we're going to see the first real correction this year because I don't remember being, seeing things this frothy since 2007. So uh, if, if the market corrects anywhere between 10 and 25%, it would not surprise me in the least bit. The, regardless of what your political beliefs are, um, you know, these, these tax laws, these new tax laws have given a lot of people a lot of life especially big companies, the guys that pay the least amount of taxes to begin with. So I'm hoping that there is some type of halo effect that lasts another year or two. But I still truly believe that there's a lot of things that are very mispriced and overpriced out there. And it is, I've, I've never, ever seen it this frothy. This is more frothy than I saw it in 07. In 07, it was pretty bad. 
And one more comment too, because I remember this time last year when we when we had this panel, I believe we were talking about we were seeing a lot of M and A. Um, we weren't seeing as many companies going private. I mean, I'll come back to everybody, you know, to to hear your thoughts on that as well. I would just want to say I think that there's going to be a lot more companies coming public this year in the microcap world through the various methods. Mm -hmm. So in the last few years, it's been uh, it's been very muted, like 20, 30, 40, 50 names. But I really think that this year is going to be a big year. Because look at what look at what's happened in the IPO market. There are there are a lot of tech companies that are slated to go public this year, because the valuations that people are paying on the public side is a much is much higher than on the private. I think that that halo effect will take place in microcap, and we will actually see a few good names. The secret to microcap, though, is that there has not been a big winner from this space in a very very long time. And when I say big, I'm talking like. Hansen's Natural, which is now Monster Energy, you know, something that basically goes from two to 200 bucks a share, or a taser. That is what needs to happen, regardless of anyone in this room owns it or not. But, but taser, taser round trip, so it went up a lot, but, but it came but, right But back let me down. tell you something, taser round trip, but it came right back. Yeah. If well, you, if you look all at the it, way I mean, it's, it's, it's a billion and a half dollar company, and it's now called Axon. Now their claim to fame is the, is the cop cameras. Um, but, but all in all, what I'm trying to say is that we need something high profile, we need something sexy, we need something hyped to no end that actually fulfills all its promises. Then people will be interested in the space again. That's what I believe ultimately needs to happen. Sam? Chris wants a Bitcoin in microcap space. That's, that's what, that's what <laughs> you he, bet. That's what he's asking for. <laughs> for sure. Um, so, oh, but, but, but yeah, just just to talk about that also, like um, the, or the market a little bit was, uh, you know, you know, like Chris talks about potentially, you know, things are frothy and can get expensive. But you know, he's been saying this probably what I've been for how saying long? this since November of two thousand and two. So I mean, he would have. I mean, if you would have pulled your money out of the market and tried to time it, you know, you would have missed out on you know a lot of the gains the last few years as well. So I mean, I'm not a proponent of market timing. You know, unless you're a big macro fund, you know, um, I don't think you really should be playing in that game that you don't understand. Sam is correct. So I want to now open it up to Q and A. So, sir, you raise your hand first. <laughs> So the, Chris, 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 before you answer, I'm going to repeat the question real quick. Okay. So, ETFs, go. <laughs> Bryant Riley spoke at his own conference last year in May. And this is kind of his big one-hour spiel every year. And he said something that still shocks me to this day. He said that there are now more ETFs out there than publicly traded companies. So when you have a source that big, and you have crypto, and you have all these things, and commodities and such, the competitive landscape for that investment dollar has never been bigger or stronger. To your second part of your question, will this lead to an uh, increase or decline? I don't, I don't really know. But I would assume that it would be a hell of a lot more volatile based off how much money is in ETFs. And you know that, that, that argument is like, you know, the tail <coughs> wagging the dog. So it's scary. Um, it's a very powerful force. Um, Wisdom Tree Stock has done very well, but um, I'm just nervous when somebody tells me that there's more ETFs than public companies. You know, is there, any, is there a true microcap ETF out there? Yeah, when, when Chris, uh, will you launch the LD Micro Index ETF? <laughs> <laughs> 
we're thinking about it. We're thinking about it. But it's also, we, as, as everyone at this panel said, you sometimes want to see something for three, four, five, six years. So I'll tell you guys all something that nobody knows. What we're basically waiting for is either a big move up or a big move down to see how all, uh, you know, all 987 companies in the index perform. So we haven't really seen it. It's been relatively easy sledding. Mm -hmm. We're looking for more volatility because no one wants an ETF that when the market goes down a lot, that the ETF basically is worthless. So we're trying to see that. What's also interesting to note from, from the LD Micro Index is that it's held up a lot better than all the other segments, than all the other markets this year. So again, this has been surprising, but you know, the jury is still not out. I'd also like to invite everybody to listen to my, uh, my last interview on the podcast uh, with Chris Abraham, who is actually right here. Uh, we talk a lot about microcap ETFs, so I would definitely check that out. Mm -hmm. Does anybody else want to comment on ETFs before I get to the next question? Sure. Uh, um, I, I'm not sure how it will play out, like, like to answer your question directly, but I think there's opportunity um, that I see from you know, the rise of ETFs, and that's finding companies that you know, aren't indexed yet but are close to it, close to being indexed. Um, and I think that can be potentially a really nice catalyst um, that can move up the valuation of a company because you know, people are flowing money into these low-cost ETFs. Um, and I, I mean, logically to me, I would guess or assume that you know, that money is a little bit stickier than um, you know, direct equity, in, like direct investments into a stock or a, a specific equity. Um, but that's just that's just because I would assume like people you know kind of set it like set their retirement accounts and kind of forget it um, type of thing, and they keep putting more money into it as well. Um, so I, I think I think what ha what has happened is that on actively managed funds it's caused more fee pressure. So you know instead of the traditional two and twenty, you know funds are charging you know lower fees if if not any fees um, for in terms of management fees and only taking you know unique fee structures. So so I'm going to repeat that question. Really good question. Excellent question. Yeah. So, how do you how do you go about your discovery of process discovery process to, to wean off a position? Is that a good? Okay. Who would like to uh, go first? I guess I'll go first. Um, <laughs> so my I mean I, I imagine my input or my opinion here is going to be a little different than these guys because I have a very long term. Um, like I said before, when I buy a company, my mindset is to own it forever. Of course, that doesn't always happen, but um, I mean pretty much if. The founder's still there. He's still being honest, still treating shareholders decently. If the industry dynamics haven't you know, drastically changed for the worse, um, if there isn't some upstart that was completely unexpected that's disrupting their business model in some way, um, my default is always just to continue to hold. Um, I mean, one of my positions is down 40% in the past couple months, and I I literally haven't even considered selling it. Um, the founder's still there, still doing the same thing he told me he was going to do. Uh, industry dynamics haven't really changed. So um, when I start selling, is my, my, my favorite reason to sell a company is I found a new company that is just so much better mm. that you know it convinces me to get rid of something that I know very well out of my portfolio and replace it. Um, with one that I do know. Um, there was a situation a couple years ago, I caught the CEO in a very blatant lie, and I thought he was blind to kind of, uh, you know, take advantage of shareholders, if you will. So I, I immediately sold after I caught him in that lie. Um, but yeah, my, my default is to continue to hold and, and not sell. 
Wait, hold on real quick, Travis. I just have yeah. to ask, you know, have, have you hold, held the stock for 10 years? You're young like me. <laughs> uh, <no>. It's <laughs> all theoretical. No, well, I, uh, I started my investment firm just over three years ago. Okay. Um, so, no, I'm not at the 10-year point yeah. yet. <laughs> Maybe you can ask him in 2025. <laughs> yes. well, he'll be back in 2025. I'll be on the panel again. definitely <laughs> ask that question. Jason, you asked a great question. I mean, there's, there's multiple reasons why I would sell a stock. Uh, one is that my original synopsis, conviction, belief doesn't take place. Um, dishonesty is a big one. And, you know, the simple fact that, you know, um, you know, I just don't feel comfortable in the company anymore. And what we do is we scale down. We don't really just blow off a position. It's, it takes months, sometimes yeah. over a year, to kind of scale a position down. So, yeah, there's been many instances where our, our time horizons are usually three to five years. But somewhere between year zero and year three, it's just not shaping up the way you did, the way you thought it, and then you sell it. And some of my biggest, you know, uh, the biggest gainers that I would have had were companies that I sold between year zero and year three. So it's, it's one of these things that sometimes you're very early at the till, mm -hmm. and you're not willing to stay patient anymore, and you usually go and find something else. Yeah, maybe what I can add, um, it's like, since I don't think you, it's possible really to time the market or time the change in perception about a stock or an industry. I think it's it's always good to uh, uh, manage risk. I mean, if you're sitting on a big winner and it increased in allocation in your portfolio, it's always good to take profits in case the perception change in the market. Uh, then, like Chris said, I mean, it's... The first question I ask myself when I want to get out is, is there liquidity in the market? Unfortunately, sometimes there's no liquidity, so uh, you scale down and um, maybe there will be another change in perception about the company and you'll be happy to still hold a small position in that company. Uh, so unless I really see that as something that I, I don't like, I mean, the thesis is totally broken or we, we talked about dishonest management, I'm um, just like scaling down either because I'm up a lot or I don't, just don't like it much anymore. Well, do you, do, you, is, do you scale down because, and then, you know, because you want to give the management maybe a chance to turn it around? I mean, like, you know, why, why scale down when you, should, you just want to cut your losses when you know, eh, I don't, don't want to be in this anymore? It's two reasons. I mean, there are many reasons to sell, but uh, Travis mentioned one, you find other, you find better ideas elsewhere, so you need some Correct. capital to reallocate. Uh, then, yeah, I mean, um, sometimes it's not management's fault. It's just um, it's taking longer uh, for their products or services to get traction in the market. You, you, you still want to give them a chance, but, um, I mean, I will, but with a smaller allocation. Well, I, to add to what Philippe said, um, there's a company that we bought a couple years ago because we knew it was going to get acquired, or we felt that it, it was going to get bought because the industry around it was consolidating. And sh there was another company that we wanted to buy, but that company was a little overvalued. Now what's happened is that overvalued company is now trading at a significant discount, and this company has appreciated a value because of what's happened on internally. We'll make that trade. And it's happened before historically. But there's one thing that I want to add to the entire room that has helped me become a much better investor. The biggest losers I've ever had, I don't sell the stock. And it's the first thing that I look at every single day. And it was usually the companies <laughs> that had the most promise. 
But Chris, also at the, the the famous round trips, you know, you're up a lot on a stock and you don't sell, you don't take profit, and it comes all the way back down. Oh yeah, the Those biggest gainer I ever had in my life was also my biggest loser. <laughs> but I still paid the taxes for it, so I became the <laughs> biggest biggest loser. <laughs> <laughs> so please don't time. ask me. It's it's the, oh oh. So, okay, hold on. on. We have time for one more question, but. It has to be a question that is a yes or no answer. Oh. So, Shelly, I'm looking at you. It has to be a yes or no question. Forget it. I, 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 can, I, can I add a comment just really yeah, yeah, yeah. quick? Um, so I, there's also a network of people that um, I have relationships with that actually have sell blocks. Like they go out to other trade to other guys and say, hey, are you looking to buy or sell a block in this liquid company? Um, and a lot of times that can be a way to get out of a name if you have a decent sized position oh, yeah. as well too. Um, and also, if you go to management, sometimes say, hey, you know, I'm looking to sell my shares, right? There's a lot of reasons to sell a stock. I'll never sell something just because it went down. But, you know, and there's a lot of reasons people have to sell a stock. There's only one reason you buy a stock, because you think it's going to go up, right? Um, but like selling, you know, sometimes funds need to liquidate. Sometimes they have certain restrictions on the size of a company they can own. Um, so, you know, a stock going down doesn't really cause me to you know, sell, but it causes me to maybe question, you know, and do more research and get more conviction in the name that I, in the company that, you know, that I like, so. Okay, guys, so real quick, as we wrap up here, where can everybody here in our audience online and uh, when we put out the re audio recording, go and find more information mm -hmm. about you and uh, your funds, various websites, and so on. So, Sam? Uh, you can go to ridgewoodinvestments.com. Uh, you can email me, sam at ridgewoodinvestments or Twitter, um, S. Namiri, a lot of different places. If you want to look me up, just Google Sam Namiri. Travis? <laughs> uh, I, I always just point people to my investing blog, uh, egregiouslycheap.com. Mm. And I now like on it. Twitter, too. That was an and SAT now on word. Twitter. Yes. Uh, Bobby peer pressured me into getting on Twitter. Oh, what a mistake. <laughs> I'm still trying to get rid of our Twitter account. <laughs> David won't give me the password. <laughs> Philippe? Yes, you can find more information about eSpace Microcap on eSpaceMC.com. Uh, also, um, eSpace Microcap is a consultant to the Rivemont Microcap Fund. So if you want more information about uh, our portfolio and uh, our fund, you go on uh, www.rivemont.com. Thanks. Chris? Uh, LDMicro.com and FBI.gov. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. That was a lot of fun. Thanks. Thank you all for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast. And thank you, Philippe, Chris, Sam, and Travis again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast. Go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap podcast or on iTunes and search Planet Microcap podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap podcast where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of stocknewsnow.com, the official microcap news source, and the microcap review magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap podcast. Have a great week, everyone. Bye.